Amen. All right. Well, good morning. I love seeing a couple of you in here. I love that I, I get to join with many of you at home. Uh, it, it's not what we would love. We would love to be gathered in this box, but I also am really grateful for the reminder that we are the church, the people, and we get to be the church not just for an hour and a half on a Sunday morning. We get to be the church 24 hours a day, seven days a week in our lives, and every aspect of that is worship. It's not just the songs we sing, although, man, I love getting to worship. Even if it's just a few of us here, knowing that you're worshiping at home. So really, really grateful to be with you this morning. If you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to turn with me to Acts chapter 18. We are going to be continuing the the story of the early church as they figured out what it looked like to be the church. And as they begin to grapple with how do we live lives that proclaim God's goodness to a world that quite honestly are finding their hope and their security in so many other things. And the second half of Acts really follows one particular person, a guy named Paul, as he begins to share the gospel with Jews and Gentiles living in places that are far removed from Jerusalem. Last week, we saw Paul in Athens. Athens was a small city, but it, was, it had a huge impact, a huge influence in the world, because Athens was full of people who were all about philosophy, who were constantly just grappling with the newest philosophy week after week after week. And Paul went in there and began to reason with them. And he didn't do it the way that we typically think of him doing it, the way that we've seen him do it throughout the rest of Acts, where he goes into a synagogue and he's talking to Jews and he begins to open up the Jewish scriptures and and, and show them how so much of what God had done in the past pointed to and prepared them for Jesus to show up. He doesn't do that because for the Athenians, they didn't consider God's word to be the foundation for their worldview. Instead, he spoke to them quoting their own philosophers. He spoke to them in a language they could understand. And last week, we really focused on how can we begin to speak the language of the audience to which we are seeking to share the good news. And it really begins with us becoming students of the people that we're talking with. Becoming students of how they think, where their world, even where their pushback and their arguments are going to come from. Because if we know what their arguments are going to be, we're we're able to address those. And that doesn't mean that the gospel changes. It simply means that the packaging of the gospel, the way in which we approach it, needs to change. Well, from Athens, Paul travels south to a very important city called Corinth. Corinth is about 20 times the size of Athens and has a massive influence in all of Greece. Corinth is a central hub of business in kind of this whole Greco-Roman area. And um, it, is, it is a rowdy place. I mean, we were thinking there's something about 200,000 people that lived in Corinth at the time that Paul visited it, which would put it on par with Huntington Beach. Huntington Beach has about 200,000 residents. And it was a rowdy, unruly place. In many ways, Corinth was like a boom town during the gold rush in California. You had people coming from all over the world with lots of different perspectives into a melting pot. And everybody was trying to get their thing going. And there was a ton of kind of moral gray areas where everybody just kind of did whatever felt right. In fact, in Paul's day, there was this verb that they used to Corinthianize 
which basically meant to live any way that you want. It would be similar to us saying today what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. That's kind of what it meant to Corinthianize in that day. And it was into that bustling moral cesspool that Paul now travels. He is without Paul and, or Timothy and Silas, his traveling companions. They are still back in Berea, but they're shortly going to be joining him. So Paul travels to Corinth on his own. He's going with the intent to continue to share the gospel and to build the church, the community of God, even there in that bustling moral cesspool of Corinth. And with that, uh, let's go ahead and begin reading in Acts chapter 18, verse 1. After this, after Paul left Athens, he went to Corinth, and there he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius, the emperor of Rome, had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Now, why did they have to leave? Apparently, the gospel had made its way, not through Paul, but through somebody else. They had, they had taken the gospel to Rome. And Roman, or I'm sorry, Christian Jews, Jews who believed in Jesus, began to reason with other Jews living in Rome. And they begin to have the same kind of pushback that Paul encountered every time he began to share the gospel with Jews. And the Jewish leadership began to, to publicly outcry against these Christian Jews to the point where the emperor Claudius just goes, I'm done with it. Any of you who are not Roman citizens, get out. And he kicks all the Jews, both Christian and, and not Christian, out of Rome. And so Aquila and, and his wife Priscilla happen to be one of those groups, one of those couples that are kicked out of Rome, and they find themselves in Corinth. So they've obviously been exposed to the gospel. Whether or not at this point they already believed, we're not really sure. They may have been believers, but they have been exposed to the gospel. And when Paul hears that they've come from Rome, he seeks them out. Let's keep reading in verse 3. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and he worked with them. And every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Now that's as far as we're going to go today, because there's enough in here for us to really lean in, and there's one thing in particular that I want to explore today. The primary thing that I want to look at is I want to look at the fact that Paul is described here as a tent maker. Now I don't know about you, but up to this point, we haven't heard a bit about this, although it seems that this is the way that Paul was paying for his way on his missionary journey. Whenever the finances got tight, he would go and he would make tents. This is what he did for a job, but what's really interesting to me is that never once up to this point have we heard Paul described as a tent maker. We've never heard Paul describe himself as a tent maker. Although it was his job, he obviously didn't define himself by that. Instead, what Paul does is he defines himself by what he has been called to do by God, namely to be his ambassador. And they, let me give you a couple of examples. If you looked at any of the letters that Paul wrote, you would see this to be the case. But let's go ahead and put Romans uh, chapter 1, verse 1 up there. This is what Paul says to the Romans. I, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. That's Romans chapter 1, verse 1. His first introduction is not Paul a tent maker. Rather, it's Paul and a, a servant of Christ called to be an apostle or a sent one. Let's go to uh, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. The very first introduction he gives when he writes a letter back to this city is that he is an apostle, not a tent maker. Let's go to Galatians 1, 1. 
Paul, an apostle. And if you looked at any of the letters, time and time again, Paul identified himself not by his tent-making job, literally. He defined himself rather by what he was called to do. And this flies in such stark contrast to how we typically think of ourselves in the West, right? I mean, think about how you get to know somebody when you meet them. Let's say you're at the park with your dog and you meet somebody new and you introduce yourself. What's one of the first questions you typically ask? What do you do, right? That just flows off of our lips. Or when you're introducing yourself to somebody, hey, my name's Eric. Yeah, I'm a pastor at a church called Lighthouse down the street, right? What we do, we define ourselves by. And I think this is one of the areas where we really trip ourselves up. Because what we've done is we have begun to, at least here in the West, we confuse our purpose for living with what we do for a living. That's a really important point. Let me repeat that again. In the West, we confuse our purpose for living with what we do for a living. And I think in this, Paul is a really helpful, you know, antidote for that. Because what did Paul do for a living? He made tents. That's how he provided for himself. But in no way was that his purpose for living. There wasn't a single day that Paul laid in bed as he was going to get up and go, man, am I fulfilled making tents? Right? Does this, does this, does this fulfill me? Because he knew that that's not what he was about. That was simply a means to an end. Paul recognized that his occupation was different from his vocation. And those are two words we typically use interchangeably, but they're very, very different. And it doesn't mean that they're in conflict with one another, but we, this morning I want to begin by explaining the distinction between them. So let's start with occupation. An occupation is a word that we get from the Latin occupare, which means to fill a position. In other words, to take up space, right? And in a lot of ways, our occupations take up space. We fill a position, we do a role, we exchange our time and our effort for a paycheck. And our occupations are often things that we dream of retiring from. Quite often, they're not all that fulfilling. Sometimes we look to them for our fulfillment, but when we do, when we start looking to our occupations to fulfill us, to satisfy us, to make us feel like we matter, we find that life tends to become pretty bland. The way that I often understand it is it's like eating eggs without any sort of seasoning. Yes, it can nourish our bodies and give us the energy we need to get through the day. It can provide what we need. But man, it doesn't feel all that, you know, it doesn't feel like life. It, it, it doesn't sing. A vocation, in contrast, is that thing that we can't help but do. It's what we were created to do. It's this part of us that we are just naturally drawn to. And vocation comes from the Latin vocare, which means to call. And so we understand a vocation, interchangeably we use it with calling. Because we, this is something we just need to do. It, it, it comes out of us. And oftentimes, we seek our calling... Through lots of means, we look for the people around us to tell us what we're called to do. Maybe it's our peers. What do they value? Like my son right now, he, his, his peers are all into watching YouTube videos about, you, you know, 
professional YouTube streamers, and he wants to be a YouTube streamer, even though the fact that he hates being on camera and he hates being the center of attention, he wants to be a YouTube streamer so badly because everybody else is, or at least the people that he's influenced by are. Others of us seek the approval of somebody, maybe it's a parent. And so they, the desire of getting their approval is what we use as our calling. And this is something that I fell into when I was a kid. Not a kid, when I was in my mid-20s. I started working at a law firm because my father was an attorney and I wanted my dad's approval. I I knew my dad loved me, there was never a question, but there was this question of, was he proud of me? Because I was an impulsive kid And so there were a lot of ways in which I go, I want my dad's approval. He's an attorney. I'll be an attorney. So I started working at the law firm. And although it was something I could have done as a career, I'm so grateful for that exposure because I realized very quickly, no, this isn't what I was designed to do. This doesn't give me life. In fact, it kind of sucked it out of me. So our calling presupposes a caller. And rather than looking to our peers or our parents or even a pastor to tell you what you're called to do, there's only one person who can tell us what we were created to do. Our creator. Right? Our father God is the only one who genuinely can share our calling with us. Of course, this begs the question, well, what is our calling? Sometimes people define a vocational calling as a different thing for each person. And in some ways, our calling will look different for each of us. It plays itself out differently because of the career path we choose, plays itself differently because of where we live, our education, and all of those other things, even opportunities that are open to us. But at its core, we each have the same calling as sons and daughters of God who were created in his image. And our calling is twofold. The first part of our calling is that we were called to do life with God. Why did he create us? He created us for relationship. He created us to be in relationship with him. I love the way that Augustine, one of the early church fathers, described it. He said, mankind was made in your image, and we will be restless until we rest in you. We will seek our purpose. We will seek fulfillment in all of the things that we do from this world, in pleasure, in productiveness or productivity, in being able to accumulate, in getting thumbs up on our social media posts. We will seek affirmation and we will seek our fulfillment in those things, but they can never satisfy us apart from God. I think about just the first few chapters of Genesis, how God created us to care for the world alongside of him, to be in relationship with him. And when Adam and Eve look to something else for their fulfillment, when they eat the fruit, they disobey him. The consequences, those curses that are laid down, right? We often look at those as God just spanking Adam and Eve, that that he's punishing mankind for their disobedience. I would suggest that the curses, far from simply being punitive, are actually his grace. Because what God was doing in that moment is he recognized that humanity has this propensity to seek after our fulfillment and our identity in the things of this world through relationships with other people. 
through the act of raising up the next generation of children, through our jobs, right? We seek our purpose, we seek our fulfillment, and he was saying, no, 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 none of those things will satisfy you. And the curses actually frustrated the very things that we as human beings have a tendency to look to for our purpose and our fulfillment, so that in effect, he was cutting a God-shaped hole in every single one of our hearts saying, only I can fill this. Find your fulfillment in me. God has made us for himself, and we will be restless until we rest in him. So our first calling is to do life with God. Jesus put it this way in John 15. I'm the vine, you're the branch. If you rest in me, your life will be productive. You will bear much fruit that lasts. But apart from me, you can accomplish nothing of any lasting value. So that's the first part of our calling, is to do life with God. The second part of our calling flows from that. Because remember, back in Genesis chapter 2, we were created in God's image to be a reflection of his heart into this sin-scarred world. We were created to co-labor alongside of him in caring for, in shepherding his creation. And even when sin entered in, God still went out of his way to call a people to be his representatives, a kingdom of priests, a holy set-apart nation who would represent his heart to the rest of the world. Jesus was the first and the greatest representative of God's heart. He was the one who did it best. He did it perfectly. He said, I didn't come to do my own will, but the will of the Father right? When you see me, you're seeing the heart of the Father lived out. And then he looked to his disciples and he said, now you guys go and continue to do what I've been doing. Reflect the heart of God. What I don't want us to begin to think is that we somehow have to be the light of the world by our own strength, that we have to just be really good people so that people will love God. Instead, As we spend time with God, as the Holy Spirit begins to shape us and mold us, as we even get to know his heart by spending time in his word and laying down our frustrations and our insecurities and our sadness through prayer, having conversation with him, as we enter into an abiding relationship that's not just for an hour and a half on a Sunday morning, but is throughout the week. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, when we're, when we're walking the dog, when we're just laying in bed, when we're, when we're watching a movie with the kids, when we're talking with our sweetie or with our neighbor, every single moment of every single day, God is with us, and we get to be his representatives. And as we spend time with him, then we become like the moon. What I mean by that is the moon doesn't have light. It doesn't shine light by its own strength. The moon rather reflects the light of the sun. And it provides light in the darkness during the night when it seems like all hope is lost. And right now, guys, we live in a pretty dark time. We live in a season. We live in a period of history where people feel overwhelmingly hopeless. I'm not sure if you're picking up on that, but that's what I'm, I'm sensing. People are discouraged. They're wondering how long this is going to be. They're wondering if it's ever going to go back to how it was. They're wondering if we will ever be able to get along and if this divided, disunited states of America can ever somehow repair itself. And into this, we 
get to radiate the hope that we have found. But it can't be something that we just contrive. It can't be something that we just try really hard to present to a world like we're used car salesmen trying to sell something that we don't actually use ourselves. This needs to be something that we have tasted and seen. And as we spend time with God, that kind of a different lifestyle will radiate. I love the way that Peter put it in 1 Peter chapter 2. Can we throw that up there? He put it this way, echoing some of the things we've already heard. You are a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are God's special possession. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Skipping down a little bit, he says, Dear friends, in light of the fact that we have been set apart by God, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles living in a land that is not your ultimate home, our home is wherever God is, and one day he'll restore this world and we'll spend eternity here, but until then, our home is where he is. And so as foreigners and exiles living in a kingdom that does not bend a knee to Jesus Christ, I urge you to abstain from the sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives amongst the unbelieving world that although they accuse you of doing wrong, although they accuse you of being selfish, of being bigoted, of being divisive, of using Jesus as a crutch, they will see your good deeds. They will see the way you live. They'll see how different the way you speak is from how other people speak. And they will ultimately bring glory to God. They will glorify God. The glory is not for us. It is not for us to take credit for the light that our lives reflect. It is for us to continue to point back to the one that radiates into this world and reflects off of us. The one that has shown us that he's greater than anything in the world. The one that reminds us that regardless of how bad it gets, COVID-19, racial friction, a divided nation will not get the last word. He will. So that is what we are called to be, is in relationship with him, abiding in him, and then reflecting his heart into a broken, sin-scarred world. That's what we're called to be. Of course, what a lot of us conclude then is if I'm called to be an ambassador of hope into this world, then I need to go and work at the church, right? Because that's where, that's where ministry happens is in the building, right? What I love, by the way, as an aside, what I love about this season is that it has forced us to recognize that ministry does not simply happen in this box. If it did, then all ministry would have stopped. Because for the last three months, we haven't been able to minister here. In the same way that we unintentionally interpret worship to simply be songs that we sing, when in fact, everything that we do in our life is an act of worship. And that means that right now we're being forced to recognize that because if, if we didn't, then we're not allowed to worship, but we are. And you guys are worshiping well in so many other areas, including worshiping together. And I'm grateful for this time that we get to do so on Sunday mornings. 
But the mindset is, in order for me to minister for God, in order for me to serve him, I've got to somehow get into the church. I've got to work there as a vocational job. And let me simply say from the outset, that is a flawed perspective. Because some people mistakenly believe, yeah, I want to serve God, but, you know, I was really good with numbers, so I became an accountant. As if that's somehow precludes you from being able to minister, right, for God, to, to care for other people. I, I, I really want to minister. I want to be a representative for God, but, you know, I became a teacher. I became a whatever. You fill in the blank. I, I, I care for, I'm a salesperson. I, I, I'm a business owner. Ah, it's second best, right? As if your job was somehow a hindrance to you being able to l- fulfill your vocation, And I think what's really helpful when we begin to look at Paul and his example in Corinth is that Paul recognized that his occupation gave him the opportunity to fulfill his vocation. Let's just break this down for a moment. Paul made tents. That was his job. That's how he kept food in his belly. But it's not what fulfilled him. It's not how he defined himself. And yet, Paul's tent-making job was actually incredibly helpful in him fulfilling his calling to be an ambassador and share the the, the good news of Jesus Christ wherever he went. Not only did it enable him to go into a new city and to be able to settle in and, and, and have a base of operation... You know, five days of the week, he's there, he's, ma- he's making tents, he's selling tents in the marketplace, he's interacting with anybody God brings into proximity to him, he's having conversations left and right. But then on Saturdays, during their, you know, their Sabbath, he's going into the synagogue and he's having conversations with Jews and, and during the week with Gentiles about the gospel, sharing Jesus Christ. He does this for a year and a half. When the Jews push back on him, he goes, that's okay. That's all right. If you guys are resistant to the gospel, I'm going to go to people who want to hear about Jesus. And so he goes a couple of doors down to the home of a Gentile who who believes in Jesus and he starts to lead a life group. And he would do this in the middle of the heat of the day when all of business shuts down in Corinth, when everybody's taking their siesta, Paul goes over to this guy's house and he leads a life group for a couple of hours in the middle of every day. This is what he does for a year and a half. Not only that, though, probably the biggest impact he makes is because he's a tent maker, he gets into contact with a couple of other tent makers, Aquila and his wife Priscilla, and they, he begins to disciple this couple. Whether they were already believers or they became believers under his tutelage, he begins to do life with them and share his faith with them. As they're stitching tents, he's talking about Jesus. As they're having a meal, he's talking about what it means to live as an ambassador of hope and reconciliation. As they are simply going about their lives, he's doing life and his life proclaims what he believes far more than his words did. Paul's occupation became the foundation for him to be able to live out his vocation. And so what I hope that you hear in this is that you don't need to look down on your tent-making job. You don't need to look down on the thing that you do to pay the bills and to keep the lights on and to keep food in your belly as somehow second best. 
You do not need to carry the burden around that only Pastor Eric and Pastor Jeff are able to truly minister. Because there are people all around us. There are 113,000 people that call Costa Mesa home. 200,000 that call Huntington Beach home. You begin to look at the numbers around us. There are over 3 million people that call Orange County home. And not even close to half of them called Jesus Christ their Lord and their Savior. There are people walking by this building who would never think of stepping foot in this building. And how does God reach mothers who aren't even in the workplace but who are simply raising their children? He dresses some of his kids up as mothers themselves. Others he invites to become nannies. And they get to have conversations at the park when their kids are playing. How does God reach people with cars that break down? He dresses some of his kids up as mechanics. And others, believe it or not, as car salesmen with values. And, 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 and then he sends them to go and interact with those individuals and, and to have you know, just the way that they live and the way they conduct their business. How does God reach students He dresses some of his kids up as teachers, others as administrators, and still others as fellow students, and he sends them to school to rub shoulders with their friends and with their students. And even during this time, I think of Teresa right now, who has just been loving on many of the kids that God has placed into her sphere of influence. Even over Zoom, continuing to love on and minister to these kids as they're walking through probably the most difficult season of their life up to this point. How does God reach the next generation when their own parents won't attend the church, don't have any faith in Jesus at all? He dresses some of his kids up as grandparents and says, take care of your grandkids. Love on them. Model for them your faith. Even if their parents don't share that faith right now, just love your grandkids. Let your life speak. How does God reach people who would never step foot into this box? He dresses some of his kids up as business owners. Others, he dresses up as baristas, you know, to serve lattes with a side of love. Um, He dresses some of his kids up as, you know, salespeople, and he dresses others of his kids up as nurses to go into hospitals with people whose lives are falling apart to go and be a ray of hope. Far too many of us think that the only way that we can be used by God is to go into ministry. And I simply want to remind you that you are in ministry. You have been called to be an ambassador of hope. Called to be an ambassador of Jesus Christ into this sin-darkened world. And your job is one of the primary ways in which you get to live it out because your job provides you a sphere of influence that brings you into proximity to people that I and Jeff may never get to rub shoulders with. And the way that you live, the way that Christ's love radiates off of you, not because you're putting on airs, not because you're pretending to be a happy, joyful person, but because you have spent time with God, because you've allowed the Holy Spirit to work in your heart so much that the fruit of the Spirit naturally is produced in your life. This isn't something where we try to tie on fruit and pretend to be happy people. 
Pretend to be joy-filled, patient, kind, gentle, loving people. That kind of stuff only comes through our proximity and our willingness to allow the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts. So this morning, I simply want to implore you to reconsider your relationship with God because it does not just have a bearing on your own walk. It does not simply affect the way you view the world. It has lasting ramifications on everybody around you. I also want to encourage you to begin to reconsider what God has entrusted to you to do in this season. Not to look down upon it. Not to think it's somehow second best to working in the church. The very fact that you don't work in the church lends credibility to your voice because remember, Jeff and I are paid to be good. You guys are good for nothing, right? That's an old pastor's joke. Meaning, it's more authentic because you don't have, oh yeah, well you're a pastor, of course. We can just disregard the way, what you think and the way you act and the way you live because it could be an act. Honestly, it's your job to be a nice person. It's not your job. But you are a son or a daughter of God, therefore you are called to be his ambassador. You need him. You need his help. You need his presence in your life. You can't do it by yourself, which is why the time we spend with him in the morning is so important. Why the conversation we have with him throughout the day, why acknowledging his presence. And, and when in those moments where we just want to rip our head out and scream at the person that they're acting so irritatingly, um, in those moments, why it's so imperative that we just take a moment to go, Holy Spirit, give me the eyes to see this person from your perspective. Give me patience, Lord. Those of you who are grandparents, those of you who have retired, I simply want to remind you that though you may retire from an occupation, although you don't have to work day in and day out to make a paycheck, you never retire from your vocation, from your calling of being in relationship with God and being his representative. And in fact, in this season, as you have a greater amount of time perhaps, this is a season where you can say, God, show me the opportunities. And, and, and let me say this to all of you who feel like, well, you know, you, you keep talking about the people God places in my life and all that. I don't feel like I have a very large sphere of influence. I don't feel like I have a lot of people that I can minister to. It's not like you, Eric, where you're constantly talking to people and all that kind of stuff. Do not begrudge a small group of people. Remember that Jesus radically changed the world primarily through investing into 12 individuals' lives. Remember that although Paul spent a year and a half ministering to people in the marketplace and interacting with people in the synagogues and leading a life group, perhaps Paul's most lasting influence, perhaps the best investment that he made in that year and a half that he spent in Corinth was into one couple's lives. Aquila and Priscilla were a couple that did life with him for a year and a half, watched the way he lived, had conversations over dinner because they had invited Paul to live with them during his time there. And when Paul left Corinth and went to Ephesus, they went with him. Their their business of making tents allowed them to change their location. And in Ephesus... 
Paul equipped them and sent them to continue to do what he had been doing, and they became partners with him in advancing the gospel. And if you read into chapter 19 of Acts, you'll find that it was Aquila and Priscilla who actually mentored and discipled the next generation of evangelists. Somebody that, at least in Corinth, many of the Corinthians thought was way more effective than Paul ever was. A guy named Apollos. And it was Aquila and Priscilla who mentored them. All that to say, please do not look down upon the small pool of people God may have placed in your life. Even if it's just a couple of friends that you're interacting with, maybe it's your quarantine buddy, your one family you're doing life with right now, even if it's just your family. Parents, I know it's exhausting. It's exhausting. We're going to get through this. But perhaps the greatest investment we can make right now is to love our children in the midst of their messiness, and to acknowledge our own messiness in this process. Grandparents, if your grandchildren are the only sphere of influence that you invest in right now, that is time well spent. Don't begrudge it. If God places others, neighbors, co-workers, other people that he brings into proximity with you, lean in. Invite God to help himself to your life and use you to reflect his heart. But at the end of the day, the greatest investment we'll make is into the relationships that he places in our sphere of influence. The, the people he puts around us lean in there. But it starts with cultivating our own relationship with him. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge right now that we're imperfect people. We don't represent you perfectly. I just want to say that from the outset. I confess I don't represent you perfectly. I confess that I am tired. I confess that I miss how things were and that we live in a very unique season right now. And it feels like it's hard to have any conversation with anybody that disagrees with us because everything is so stinking contentious. I just want to hide until the election is over and we'll just be done with it all. And yet... You have called us to reflect your heart into this season, to be your ambassadors like the moon reflects the sun. God, we can only do that with your presence, with your enablement. Holy Spirit, would you come and fill us up? Would you renew a hunger and a thirst for you? That we would be transformed through our proximity with you so that when we interact with others, our lives would radiate like Moses coming down off the mountain having spent time with you for 40 days and his skin radiated. God, would your presence radiate off of us, not so that people will be impressed with us, but so that they would be drawn to you, so that they would question, what's different about this person? And God, in those moments when people are genuinely asking, may we be the kind of people who are able, capable of giving an answer for the hope that we have in us with humility and respect. God, would you give us fresh eyes to look at the things you've entrusted to us to do in this season, our jobs, our responsibilities, the relationships you've placed around us. May we invest ourselves with a renewed focus because this season, as painful as it is, is momentary. And eternity is so much longer. So may we not grow weary and heavy-hearted. May we not give up 
But may we fix our eyes on you, Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. So that we won't grow weary. So that we will not lose heart. Help yourself to our lives, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. Let's worship together. i
I'm grateful to all of the tech people who are enabling us to continue to have this conversation. I'm so grateful that you join us on Sundays to worship. May I remind you that your worship does not end now. Now we get to begin to worship him through the way that we interact with our family, through the way that you serve others, through the way that you go about doing your job over the course of this week, through the conversations you have, through the way that you listen in the way that you speak, through the way that you treat people who disagree with you. May we go worship God now as his representatives in a world that desperately needs to see his light reflected in our lives. Father God, would you go with us because we need you. Without you, we can't do it. (laughs) We would just be actors acting poorly. 
but we want to be your representatives, your image bearers, as your sons and daughters, living in a land that is not our own. Glorify yourself through us, we pray, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. Have a wonderful week.